You're listening to the Ivy Entrepreneurship Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. My name is Eric Morris, and I will be your host for this episode. I'm delighted to be here with Ron Close. Ron and I have actually done this uh, before, this this kind of format, and, and he's just fantastic at it. I mean, uh, one of the reasons Ron's just such a great speaker is that his experience is vast, I guess, uh, in one way, in the sense of he's a serial entrepreneur. You know, it's not just one entrepreneurial venture, it's, it's a number of them. And so he brings a, a real different mix of experience because of that. But he's also worked, you know, in, for large companies. He's a, a board member, an advisor, uh, a consultant. Um, so Ron has played a lot of different roles over his career. And, and I think what you're going to find about Ron is that he doesn't just go through these experiences, he's thoughtful about them. And that's why he's such a great resource, I think, to so many entrepreneurs uh, out there. The one thing that I, I forgot to mention is Ron's also a teacher. Ron spent a lot of time with us at Ivy actually teaching the new venture courses. So I've gotten to know Ron really well over the years, and, and I know you're going to delight in his experience and the lessons that he's learned over the years. And really, the first thing I want to do is I want to turn it to Ron and just say, Ron, would you mind sharing, you know, maybe a little bit more about you and, and your kind of entrepreneurial journey uh, over the years? Well, Eric, thank you. And Ash, thank you for thinking of me for this, uh, for this format. It's, it's a complete honor to be able to spend a little bit of time with people who are going to change the world in the future. And Eric, it's a double honor to actually be on this camera right now with you. And we do go back a long way. And I think it might even be a couple of decades. Um, and it's all been great memories and high impact stuff. And at least, at least on your side, and it's an honor for me to be here with you. You know, I, I graduated from Ivy back in 1981. And uh, I, I went originally to consulting. It was Anderson Consulting. And I did my usual, you know, two year stint at consulting before I realized it wasn't really what I thought it was and went, went on to a number of other small companies in almost what I would describe as an embarrassingly scrappy, self-serving, promotion-surfing career, you know? <laughs> and, you know, instead of me walking through my CV, which in a nutshell is, you know, big, big and small companies leading to sort of in my early 30s, some entrepreneurial, some serious entrepreneurial startup stuff, and then, you know, selling my, my uh, internet service provider called Netcom. I was a co-founder of that. Uh, selling it to AT&T and then staying on board uh, with AT&T for a couple of years as president of Internet and e-business services, and then kind of getting involved in software companies and going later in my career in my mid-40s to Bell Canada and serving on the senior leadership team at Bell Canada, you know, being part of that, that issue. It's been a, a wild ride of big company and small company experiences, and all of them very educational. Since those days, you know, uh, my, my last full-time role was as the CEO of Pelmerex, which is the parent company of the Weather Network, which was a, another honor and pleasure. Uh, great people there and uh, very, very fond memories and thoughts about that organization. I, I semi-retired and got involved with some people investing in fintech, serious investments in fintech, and, and I've now sort of worked my way into a role as an advisor, a leadership advisor for people at, uh, that are working in fintech, small companies and, and larger companies, I would say. Some of them are on the private equity side, some of them on the, on the, on the fintech startup. Uh, Mike Ketchin, I know, is a student of mine at Ivy, and I coach him now. He's the founder of Wealthsimple and 
you know, I, I coach the founders, uh, and, and I, I use the word coach sort of with a little bit of wiggle room and grant me a little bit of space on that because I'm not a trained coach. I'm a bit of a hack, a small C coach, if you will. I'm really a fellow practitioner for these leaders. And I, I, I sit sort of between the board and the CEO or the senior leadership team with probably 10 or 20 of these companies right now, just trying to help them figure out how to grow, how to scale, how to avoid walking into the blades of a fan, if you will, as a, as a leader, as a manager, um, and also coaching boards and new directors on boards, whether they're venture capital people who are wildly smart at modeling but don't have a lot of experience being on a board of directors. And so how do we intervene with management without compromising their ability, their proprietary feeling about their baby and their, their ability to make things happen, and yet uh, be able to add value and eliminate hurdles for them? All of these things are sort of born just from battle scars, most of it me doing things wrong and learning, trying to learn from those things, but generally being a student of leadership and teamwork since I, since I was at Ivy. And Ivy taught me that. And one of my Ivy profs, Dick Hodgson, in organizational behavior is one of the people I think about most in addition to Eric and the things I've learned from Eric as well. But, you know, just about how do you bring people along? What's the difference in a team of people warming chairs around a table and people who are turned on sort of at a visceral level and really understand the, the dream and understand how they reach across the divides, the functional divides, the technical divides, the market divides, to just make sure we don't drop balls and have better than average performance as a team. I've been a student of that, and I've been lucky to work with some, some great people that have, have given me some, some good tips. And uh, I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Eric. Okay. Well, th thanks, Ron. I, I think there's, there's a ton to unpack already. And I, I want to leave most of this with you. But just one thing that I, I heard you say around, you know, you're a peer as much as you are an advisor, I guess. And, and I think that's so important, right? Uh, you've been through this. And, and I encourage everybody that's listening that, that has that entrepreneurial uh, desire to, to find that group of other entrepreneurs that they can bounce ideas off of. And uh, it's just so helpful to know you're not alone and that there's others in this. And when you can find seasoned, you know, uh, men or women, uh, people like Ron, uh, to help you through that, I think it's enormously uh, effective. So I, I second that, Eric. There's this lonely spot for sure as a founder CEO. Yeah. And there are some things that you can openly communicate with your investors and your board, if you have a board. And there's some things that you can openly communicate, many things with your team and your direct reports. But there's some things that you just can't put down your dukes and sort of divulge your fears. And for that, it's nice to have sort of a confidential comrade who can just say, yeah, I know, I know how you're feeling and yeah. some thoughts and maybe noodle a little bit together on a whiteboard, somebody that you respect and somebody that respects you. Absolutely. Really, really, really important. You know, one of the questions that I'm sure you get a lot, and it's always a hard one to answer, in my opinion, because it's usually not a bolt of lightning. But Ron, when you were evaluating, you know, is this an initiative that I want to jump into and, and start this business? How did you know that was the right opportunity for you and, and, and then go through your decision making to, to take that leap? You know, the irony of it was, I think in my life, I had I had either in my early career, I had heavy entrepreneurial inclinations, and yet I was doing well in larger companies. I was, a, I was a running new product introduction at a telco and then running marketing and then running sales and marketing. 
and making presentations at the board. And I had just, you know, at 32 years old, decided, I don't think I actually need to take the risks of, entre of entrepreneurship. I had a home and a mortgage. I had a wife and two children and bills to pay. And, you know, it was scrambling and it was, it was starting to make some dough. Yeah. And, you know, the, the decision for me to, to start a company was one that I had to de-risk completely. Along with my amigos, there were three of us that, you know, we actually started Netcom Canada in those days. And it was one of the earliest and largest internet service providers back in those days. We started it in, uh, uh, you know, in our, in our early 30s. Yeah. And it was, it was a process of writing a business plan. Now I mean a detailed 85 page business plan with a model that's nested with driver, driver uh, sub charts that feed revenue and feed headcount and labor and the ability to do what if analysis to see where the risks are. And because I needed to uh, mortgage my house and cash in my RSPs and put everything on the line for that first startup, I had to de-risk it. And so that was the process I went through. What I encountered and what I've encountered since is sort of like there are a couple of a small number of really important things that define a really compelling business plan or a business idea. And one of them is just the most important, perhaps, is an effective and differentiated solution to a big problem or opportunity. And there's a lot packed in there. It's an effective solution. It really does work. It's differentiated. It's a little bit better than the bad guys. And the problem or the opportunity is actually material. You know, I've introduced it over the years, including my teaching days at Ivy, this concept of a, of a bleeding neck wound. You know, I would rather sell gauze to somebody bleeding from the jugular because they desperately need it. And it's an easy sale if you're standing there at the right time with a solution that they, they're going to die without than a vitamin that, you know, you can be even better. I know you're well now, but you could be even better. That's a tougher sale. So, and the size of the opportunity is important just because we're going to work our our butts off no matter what. And we might as well work at large, fruitful spaces. So one, there, there are a couple of other things I want to mention in terms of at the, at the top of the iceberg, what we look for in really compelling business plans. One of them is that a differentiated solution that works in a, a large and attractive market. The second one, perhaps not in any order, is just attractive economics. And you know, you've got to be able to acquire customers, at a, at a rate that you can get a sufficient payback so you can pay the bills and change the world and have an impact on people and your employees and your customers and your shareholders. So there's no avoiding attractive economics. And the third thing is a credible team with a credible plan. And that's, you know, that I spent five years at Ivy trying to teach how do you write a credible plan, you know, and with varying degrees of success. And I spent, I've spent 10 years since then uh, really just working with a lot of startups, working through that. But there's nothing magical about it. It just don't leave wiggle room for me to furrow my brow and say, yeah, but do you, did you consider this? And what about the competition and regulation or the economics aren't attractive or you've never done anything like this before or no one's ever done anything or this is so new and unproven in terms of the market pull and demand. There's some no-brainer stuff that you yourself, if you sit back, all you entrepreneurs with, an honest assessment of your idea and your thoughts, you would say, look, is this compelling? What makes it compelling? And what makes everybody I talk to, my mom and my dad and my friends and whoever it is, a little bit skeptical that, are you sure this is the one? So nice. it's not rocket science. 
<laughs> well, no, you know, but I, I love how deliberate you are about it, Ron. Um, and some people, one, we still use the bleeding neck analogy, <laughs> the neck wound analogy. I, I love that versus the vitamin. It's still something we, we use around uh, ivy. The other thing is make sure it's big enough. Again, is this really going to deliver on kind of the lifestyle and the interests that you have, right? You're going to spend a lot of time with this. Are you going to enjoy it? I think like everything there, Eric, there's, so, there's tension. And, you know, I, I work with a lot of companies now that are wrestling with, is it a Canada-only play? Is it a global play? Can we afford not to go to the U.S.? What about the U.K.? Germany has all kinds of opportunity and stuff going on. And there's, there's a tension between sort of the, the, the simplicity of a single market with single regulatory rules and you can know who the competitors are and understand a little bit more of demographics and consumer behaviors and the wild com complexification, if that's a word, that happens when you move into a new space, perhaps with new investors, definitely with new consumer behaviors and, and uh, regulators. And so, but is the Canadian market big enough for some of these fintech startups? And, you know, it's a, it's a tease. And I think over the battle scars of my life, I've really developed a, an appreciation for, I think it was Jeffrey Moore and Bridging the Chasm or something that wanted to hit the head pin first. And, you know, if, if you can win in Canada and dominate in Canada first and perfect your model, if you're Canadian, if you're American, I mean, in your space, the space you know best, perfect your model, debug your assumptions in terms of cost of acquisition and cost of service and churn rates or whatever the economics are, the lifetime value, whatever your economics are, debug them, understand the sensitivities, figure it out, and then propagate like hell. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it gets back to your, your thinking about uh, and talking about de-risk. Um, you know, for those of you that, that, that may be at Ivy or Ivy grads, uh, the nine step process we teach is, is came from Ron. You know, I think he built on stuff that we had done in, in the past, but, but it's a, it, it's a process. And a lot of that process is about de-risking. And, you know, I think there's this kind of misconception about entrepreneurs that they're these huge risk takers. And, and there is some risk in anything that we do. But the idea that I think the successful entrepreneurs take is there's a body of risk. Now, how do I bring it down? How do I de-risk it and, and into something that I'm, I'm, I can manage and I'm willing to go forward with? And um, that de-risking piece is, I think, so important. One you know, there's, there's a corollary to that, and I, I couldn't agree more. And I spend quite a bit of time, if you're going to lose sleep as a founder, what could go wrong? You know, what significantly could go wrong? I don't necessarily just mean a black swan event that's an unexpected gotcha, but just all the little things that can go wrong that could hurt you. What meetings do you have tomorrow? And we as founders and leaders, we spend all of our days and nights thinking about what could, be, what could go wrong and what am I going to do and how can I ensure myself against it? But one of the things I wanted to add as a corollary there is the encouragement to think as a leader about what could go right. What could go wildly right? You know, you're a year into a startup, you've gone from six people to 23 people or 41 people, and your team is busy with the block and tackle of building channels and building products and hiring people and getting your board decks together and your dashboards together. But somebody's got to think about what could go wildly right here. Yeah, awesome. I, I often encourage these founders, you know, tomorrow morning, the phone rings and it's a blow your hair back good news proposal from somebody right out of left field. And it changed, changes the whole trajectory of your startup. Yeah. Phone, 
What was the offer? Why is it so attractive? Why did it blow your hair back? Figure that out and go make that phone call happen. Yeah. You know, the worst thing, and, and you've seen it, I've seen it, I'm sure Ash has seen it as well, is when an, an entrepreneur doesn't make it because they couldn't deal with the success. And, you know, so again, that planning and that de-risking is so important. One of the things that I, I've always admired, uh, Ron, about you in terms of the, the ventures you've been involved with, and, and even when you've come in as president, and is, is really team how you've put team around. And, and I think it's probably part of this de-risking to some extent. Can you kind of take us through your thoughts around team and, and why it's so important? I, I guess I, you know, I always have felt like I'm the weakest link in the chain. And so, you know, I really have relied heavily on very talented people. But one of the things I tried to add value to is the process of creating a true team a team where everybody, as I was mentioning earlier, everybody does understand the, the objective and the goal, what we're worried about going wrong, what, what we want to see to declare it a success. How will we know if we're winning? And, you know, the, the, I, think, I think teams are vehicles for getting almost everything done. I, I think if you're an artist or you're an individual contributor at the most finite level, perhaps that's not true, but even artists have teams, even tennis player and single sports, you know, credit their team. And I think the skill set that is quite valuable is the ability to contribute to a highly functioning team, make it a highly functioning team. It means watching body language, even as a peer around the table, watching body language of the people around the table and are they leaning in or are they leaning out? Too cool for school. Do you have their heart? Do you have their head? Do they have a voice? Do they have an opportunity to contribute, even if they're introverted instead of extroverted? What can you do to make sure that people buy in and feel like they're an important part of this team effort? And I, I think communication and context is key there, and, it, and the courage to actually share what, what you're doing and why, and what you're afraid of and why, and what you're hoping for and why, and then listening and adapting and changing the direction, maybe even changing the goal, the goal. But that magical ability to actually create a kick-ass team is something that's valuable at all levels. And in fact, I would say, you know, I've been the chairman of YPO here in Toronto in my earlier life, Young Presidents Organization. You know, I've worked with a lot of presidents. And I think one common feeling they have had is the surprise when they sit down at the president's chair and none of the levers that they thought they ha would have if I ever ran this place, none <laughs> of them were connected to anything. You know, you still have to win through persuasion. You still yeah. have to be credible. You have to be respectful. You have to invest in buy-in and, and the, not just the what, but the why of, of explanation. And all of those skills, you start practicing with your first job and your first team. And if you can't carry a team along within a group of peers, you're not going to get the job as that, that is the formal authority hierarchical leader. It's even more important when you're in that role to put down your dukes, leave your ego at the door and say, I might be the president and CEO of this company, but teach me what's going on. Tell me what you can bring. You know stuff that we desperately need. I'll provide as much context as I can, even stuff that I'm not sure you might need. But I'll trust then that you're an adult, a smart adult with great training, and you're going to bring all your gusto to the, to the challenges at hand here. Yeah, I, I think 
there's a lot of leadership lessons in that, uh, Ron. And I think, you know, being a good leader is, is very much working through your team and, and getting them engaged heart and mind. I love that. Uh, I love that idea. Can you speak maybe just a little bit about this idea of the right people on the bus, the right people on the team? And, and uh, I, th I think you've said a little bit about that from an attitudinal standpoint, but, but what else are some of the things that you think? And I, and I know, you know, you had a, a team that you worked very closely with in, in the first or maybe first couple of ventures that you went through. What was it, you know, that they brought to the table maybe that, that made everything kind of gel for you guys? Well, I think it's a combination. Obviously, there's, there's sort of complementary technical skills and that's just that it, it's too big. There are too many things for one brain or one person, one woman, one man to handle it all. You might be able to get away with it for the first year or so, but when you start scaling and you really start getting into more complicated opportunities or threats, you really get some specialization experience required there. And so I think, I think first there's technical complement. And um, most importantly, though, I would say is a, a cultural fit. And I know those are over, overused words, and I'm not, let, let me try to find better words that might be more meaningful. Like, I want, I want to work with people who are, um, are comfortable with me sharing ambiguity if I'm the president. Like, I don't want to have to pretend to be smart and pretend to have answers and pretend to always be cool and calm. I want to be authentic. I want to trust that you can handle the truth, and I want to tell you the truth. Yeah. And I want to be able to say that openly and have, have you add value, add your magic. So I think, I think it's, it starts, as much as, as teams are, are important, it does start with the culture of the leadership of that, of that team and the, the willingness or the propensity to be open, honest, share things contextually so that you have a fighting chance of coming up with the right answers, to listen and adapt to always, you know, are the people around the team always considering themselves students? Are they always willing to learn and listen? How we talk to each other matters. How we share our di diverging opinions matters. The culture of disagreeing and, and improving on each other's ideas matters. The words we, we choose to use with each other are chosen with a little bit of care, knowing how precious these relationships really are. And if you can just get that balance right of leaning in and showing emotion, but also being credible in terms of what you're adding substantively with your thoughts, I think I've always been surprised at how strong those teams can be. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of leadership lessons uh, in that that I wish were shared more broadly right now. Let's go on to some other things, Ron. I, I think you've been sharing you know, lessons learned already. But, uh, but I also know that that's something you've given some thought to. Uh, I think, you know, your role as advisor sitting back and thinking, your role as a teacher sitting back and thinking through, and you've recently published some things on lessons learned. You know, do you want to share uh, two or three of those with us or maybe just start with one and, and we'll, we'll play it from there. But uh, Sure, right. sure. Um, you know, I, I have done a lot of thinking about this and, uh, you know, some of them are quite embarrassing lessons learned, you know, but and there's, there's some that are more lessons learned from a business perspective. Like I would say a lot of startups have a difficult time really crafting and perfecting a compelling story. They have a difficult time knowing actually how to organize people, what titles to give, the compensation and remuneration. They have a difficult time with the cadence of management. 
Every Monday morning, we're going to have a team meeting. Who gets invited? What's on the agenda? What about the Thursday afternoon all-hands sessions? What about the monthly meetings? Is there a, a different team for the product development approvals and processes? The cadence and the frequency of meetings, who attends them, what we talk about, is always something that young entrepreneurs are trying to wing it, and they're, they're starting from scratch. And so there's, there's some do's and don'ts on that front. But what I'd really like to share more than just sort of the, the toe stubbing of, you know, a startup getting the cap table wrong or, you know, giving equity away for $15,000 to a lawyer and, you know, regretting it six months later. I think one of the things for young people starting up, whether they're entrepreneurial or heading into a, a career in a company, is to pick the right river. And I think I've concluded in my, in my life that it's just a lot more fun to be in a rising industry. In an industry that's exciting, full of innovation and growth with opportunity, than it is to be in an industry that's sort of declining and shrinking and, and investment challenged, if you will. And whether you're doing a startup or you're joining a company, I think there's just more opportunity for promotion and learning and growth if you know, the, the challenges are positive, not negative consolidation, contraction, you know, cost reduction, preservation. The second thought I would like to share there, if I could, is to have an attitude, uh, this is a bit embarrassing, but shine on every rung. Shine on every rung of the ladder. So there, there is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. You just have today. You have the people you're talking to today. Treat every single interaction as that one chance that, thank God, I did my best to be on my game. I, you never know. You never know what might happen. And if you, if you stop aiming for three rungs above you and start trying to shine today on these rungs, and what, do I, what meetings do I have tomorrow, and how could I pleasantly surprise people by just doing a little bit of extra, a little bit more research, a little bit more on the personal front, knowing about them or their family or their kids or their sick father, just how can I shine on every rung a little bit extra? I've written down a couple of notes here, but one, I've got a half a dozen of these, and I don't know, I don't think we want to go through them all. But one I, I want to make sure I don't, I don't miss here is to practice the art of persuasion. And I think it is related to my comments earlier about being on a team and influencing from within a jury of your peers. You don't have hierarchical authority, but you can still matter to the direction of the team. And if you become a, a student, a lifelong student about persuasion, about being crisp, about avoiding opportunities for red herring discussions or distractive words that made you miss my fundamental point, it is that, it is that opportunity, I think, that is quite special to just uh, practice and perfect and continually seek feedback in the art of persuading other people. Yeah. I think that's great, Ron. And I see there's some questions starting to come in. I'm going to ask uh, maybe one more question. And, and if you uh, have questions in the audience, please uh, use the Q&A banner and, and we'll get those to Ron in a minute. So Ron, last one, and uh, this is something that I know you've, you've thought about and spoken to, but I think given where a lot of the businesses that are maybe listening today are very early stage coming out of the, the masterclass with Ash, I think that idea of getting your story right is so important at that stage. Could you talk a little bit about that uh, and some of your thoughts there? You know, I, I think it starts with, you know, people want to be a part of, an important part of something good. And your job 
if you're attracting money or, or talent or partners, distribution partners, your job is to make them believe that this company is something good and that their participation is really important. I don't care if they're the receptionist or if they're the, 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 the key investor. So I think the whole idea about um, being able to convince people that they're an important part of something good has to do with that uh, um, coming to terms with those two sides and providing context. I don't know if that addressed that question adequately or not. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it actually is very related to the persuasion stuff that you were talking about before. And, and I think it, it usually is based in a real firm belief in yourself in the idea that you're going forward with, right? We, we often talk in class of, you know, if you're ashamed to kind of sell your friends and family on this idea, maybe it's not the right idea for you. You know, you want something that you really feel passionate about. And, and as people, we're storytellers and we respond better to stories. So that idea of the elevator pitch always ends up so generic to me that I like the idea and the way you've you know, talked about it in the past around storytelling. What's, what's the story you want to tell about this venture and why are you so excited about it and, and how are you going to share that excitement and build that excitement in your team and those people that you want on board? I just think that's critical. That, that's so well said. You know, it really is about eliminating the skepticism yeah. or avoiding opportunities to create skepticism. Yeah. It is about very quickly getting to what matters about this venture and being able to explain it in a very simple and credible way. It's about what's the hard part of, of succeeding here. You know what? The hard part is actually just going to be raising the money. If we can have the money, we could operate. We've done this before. Or maybe the hard part is going to be getting distribution. But you know what? We've got a special in with Walmart or we have this or we have that. It's, it's actually draining the swamp of furrowed brows and questions and skepticism in a very compelling way that doesn't leave wiggle room for people to say, yeah, well, keep working on it and, you know, come back to me when you've debugged all of your, your dusty corners there. Yeah. It, it is tough to be complete and compelling about that. And it takes, I think, a lot of deliberate practice and feedback over and over again. And I do spend quite a bit of time saying, okay, tell me what you're doing and why you're doing it. Why does it matter? What's the hard part? What could go wrong? What's the next step? How will you measure? What steps have you already taken to give me confidence that you're, you've got momentum already, that you've already demonstrated, demonstrated progress? And what's the next few steps through which we'll see progress? So there are some tricks and there's some practice, but it's wildly important to all your constituents to really uh, be able to con uh, communicate a compelling story. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Ron. Let's go ahead and answer some questions. So I have a question here from Nicole, and it was back to kind of when we were talking about advisors. So Ron, how do you find an advisor with experience to help you? Um, you know, if they're so successful, you know, kind of the idea is why do they want to help you? <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's a great question. And I think you, you generally mingle. You generally mingle. There's entrepreneurial communities in London and in Toronto and in New York and Boston and LA and San Fran, of course, all around the world. And if, you, if those are your aspirations, mingle, get out there and meet people and talk to people at varying stages of their careers. And they will know who the influencers are. They will be quick, quick to point you to go and talk to Professor Eric Morse. If you could get time with Eric Morse, get time with Eric. His time is incredibly valuable. 
And that, that word of mouth, that sort of informal channel, if you will, come, that comes from mingling and being involved in the ecosystems that you hope to participate in. You know, there are, there are venture capital groups. I consult quite a bit now with Portage here in, in Toronto and Montreal and, and in North America, and in fact, more broadly than that. And, you know, there's a number of advisors that that ecosystem have attracted and they get a bit of a buzz and a bit of a momentum themselves. But it really is all about circulating and talking and meeting people. Yeah. You know, the only thing I'd add to that, uh, Nicole, is that, you know, guys like Ash and, and, and Ron, I would say the entrepreneurial community is a community that wants to give back. You know, there was somebody there in their career when they needed them. And every successful entrepreneur I've ever known has a story about that. And because of that, they're willing to give back. So it's, it's up to you to kind of get in their circle, as, as Ron was saying, and, and make that compelling pitch with your story. And if they can see how they can help, I, I think they very often do. So, so don't be afraid to, to reach out and, and make those asks. Okay, I have another question here, um, Shukri. Ron, could you share your experience the first time you led a team? Were there, what were the big surprises to you, if there were any? <laughs> you know, that, that takes 130 year memory. Um, I guess my surprises were sort of my ineffectiveness. Uh, I, I might be making some of this up to sort of craft a story of a, of a lot of years. I, I can't remember. But I would say I'm, I've been surprised at how non intuitive team leadership really is. And, you know, often. As a child, I was on basketball teams and football teams and things like that, and they, they were different. When you start getting into a business team, you start getting into one where there's hard and fast objectives and consequences uh, that aren't just losing the game or losing the trophy, but maybe losing your job or helping others lose their jobs. So it gets to be pretty serious pretty quickly. And just a little bit of coaching about making sure there's clarity about the objectives of the team, making sure that people have a chance to opt in or opt out of the team. It's very difficult to form a team dynamic if there's some people that just frankly don't want to be part of this project. And so, so you need some process and some authority to set the team off in the right direction at the, right at the start. And then I think it is about watching human behavior, body language, and offline saying, geez, Ash, I've noticed that you haven't said a word in the last three team meetings. I want to make sure you're okay. Is there anything that's not working for you? What are you seeing? What's turning you on? What's turning you off here? And being able to sort of cajole people around from behind the scenes to get that passion all marshaled in one direction. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. This is great. Um, let's see. We have an anonymous uh, question here. Could you please tell your story when, this is a great question, when you were at your lowest point in your entrepreneurial career, nothing's working, you know, all those headaches, how'd you come out of that? That's an easy, it's an easy one for me to remember. I, I, was, uh, I was a CEO of a publicly traded software company. It was a reverse takeover, which was a public shell that we moved uh, an operating company that really had no business being public at all, really no revenue. It was wireless software with a lot of intellectual property. And I and my amigos, it was you know, our third or fourth venture together, sort of moved to Windsor and during Monday to Friday and commuted from Toronto to Windsor and rented a house with five bedrooms in it and all lived together and worked our buns off for a couple of years unsuccessfully. 
in a public environment. And it was, it was quite a humbling experience to go through that. It, at the end, it, what we were trying to do there is actually find product market match. We had great technology, but there are always reasons for the customers to say, I'm not quite ready to invest in this innovative technology. It seems a bit risky for one reason or another. And where we found a dozen customers, we needed 120 users. It was big software for selling to British Telecom and Bell Canada and things like that. And we just, we just couldn't find that kind of volume of success. And in the end, we ended up selling it to Research in Motion. And they bought it really for the technical expertise. We had some great engineers, wireless software engineers. We had some intellectual property that they wanted to get. And, you know, it was a, it was a get out with a skin of your teeth situation here. Nobody made any money. Nobody really lost much money there. Um, at one point, I was funding payroll on Thursday nights through my, my own bank account to make sure that people got paid tomorrow. And it was just so damn stressful and so unfruitful in the end and so trying. The, the team helped and ha having a team of competent people that could just look after different chunks of this challenge was really helpful. In the latter stages, even the team went away because I couldn't afford to pay everyone at that stage of the game. And um, I, think, I think that still is with me. Like, I don't think there's a happy ending. I think I got out of it and we landed the plane and we walked away with you know, uh, all kinds of difficult future crafting scars, to be honest with you. It hurt and it still hurts when I think about it. Yeah, I remember. Fortunately, they're not all like that. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that time, Ron. I think there were also some problems with your uh, driving between Toronto and Windsor, if I remember. I got the odd speeding ticket. You're right. I knew you'd remember that. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. <laughs> you know, there's a follow-up question that I think is, is kind of interesting to, to go with that one. And it's, it's from Sarah, actually. She, she says, should an entrepreneur always be thinking about an exit strategy? Oh, Sarah. Sarah, firstly, it's nice to hear from you again. Hi. Um, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I know that's a, a, a waffling answer, but no to the extent that the thing that will make your exit most attractive is that you're a good operator and you spend all your time thinking about business success and delighting customers and building teams. And to the extent that you're always looking at the door, it compromises your focus on growth and success. In fact, I've competed with companies in the past that really were begun with the end in mind, but the end was really a a financially driven end of a consolidation play, a sellout, an IPO, something like that. And they failed to do the operational hard work to create a sustainable company that, you know, you could operate if you had to. And I've always valued the ability to operate these companies and knew that that was creating value in and of itself. The other thing, though, is what, what might happen here? Like, where could this end? Who, what, what if we have wild growth opportunity, but we have to fund the working capital? You know, if, if it's a $500 cost of acquisition per customer, but it's an 18-month payback on that, I got to fund a whole bunch of growth there while I wait out the 18 months to get the cash back. And so some successful companies really do require a lot of strategic thinking about the financing steps that we're going to have as we go forward here. And to that extent, beginning with the end in mind is always helpful. And knowing to whom might we speak? What might we talk to a, a strategic partner a private equity group, uh, 
you know, an angel group that might, you know, increase their investment. Where could we go? That too is getting back to this losing sleep at night, thinking what could go wrong here and making sure you're out in front of that wave of risk to say, even if these guys lose faith in us, I have a couple in my back pocket that can sub in really nicely. And you're always working those angles to make sure that you can never be victimized and that your teammates, therefore, can never be victimized. And as the leader, that's the least you have to do. Yeah, I think that's a great answer, Ron. Thanks. Thank, thanks for the question, Sarah. This one's from Ash, different Ash. Uh, any learnings from starting out with either the right or the wrong partners, having to remove partners? Do you have any experience you could share? I, I do. I do. And my, my experience there really is, is more as an advisor than my personal direct experience, just to protect my friends. But um, there's, there's a lot of common errors being made in very early days. And those are errors in choosing your partners. Those are errors in structuring the management team and the equity sharing early. Those are errors in that cap table and who you allow onto the cap table as an investor. And there's so, it's so difficult a year or two later to unwind some of these things. You know, a, a sort of a, a pat example here is, you know, you get a, an MBA from Ivy and you get a, a, a Waterloo developer and they, you know, they have great complementary skills and they're both needed in a, in a tech startup, a digital startup, for example, but quite often one or the other, and maybe the clearest would be the developer is a great minimum viable product, you know, sort of wireframe designer and getting the product originally to market. But two years later, you might have 25 engineers working for her or him. And now she has to be good at allocating work and organizing an engineering team and setting up a QA team and attracting engineers by doing public speaking out in, in the community. And yet you gave her the CTO title and 35% of the equity. And it's hard now to actually say, you know what, we need a, we need a CTO that's really got capabilities of a full CTO or a fuller CTO. And so under title in the early days, you know, save the chief of something word for, for later. Treat equity as something wildly precious. You know, I know that cash is precious, but so too is equity. And that's, that's a tension, another tension you'll experience. Just think about what might I have to do to undo this commitment right now before you get into them. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a tough, tough thing, and I think that's great, uh, great answer, Ron. It's uh, something that people should be thinking about as they're starting up, and it's it's a particular dilemma when people start with friends. You know, the I always tell them, you know, put those agreements in place while you're still friends, because uh, it gets a lot harder as we go down the road, and, and you find different aspiration levels between partners and all of those things that uh, are tough to unwind later. So especially if you haven't been brave enough to have those conversations while things were good, like the, yeah. the, the shotgun clauses and what happens if we fall out, how will we, how will we unwind without ruining our friendship here? Yeah. And if you talk about that before it goes astray, uh, you're, you got half the battle won. You're in way better position for sure. You know, one, one thing maybe I'd, I'd ask you again is that, uh, and again, I, I've, I've read, you, you've written on this, so I, I, I know uh, kind of where that is, but I, I think it's something that hasn't come up. And it, you talk a lot about a balance. You've got to find a balance. I think it's between yourself, uh, investors, employees, and customers. And, you know, when you, as an entrepreneur and you're thinking about these different stakeholders, how, how do you find that right balance? 
You know, I, I think balance is a big word. And it certainly has been in my career and as I've been talking to a lot of teams in two different ways. One of them is sort of the, the work-life balance issue. And one of them really is the difficult role of balancing the various and sometimes differing needs of shareholders, customers, and employees specifically. That three-legged stool, if you will. And the trick of, of running a company is being able to find a successful, sustainable position that makes the shareholders happy, the customers happy, and your employees happy all at the same time. And to be able to grow and continue to innovate and you know, succeed that way. It, you can at any given time sacrifice your employees for your customers and just you know, rule out vacations and weekends. Or you could sacrifice the, you could hire more employees, but you might have to raise more money. You know if the quality of life isn't good enough. So that difficult balancing act is a sensitivity that I would love to see entrepreneurs have because it's, it's what the job of leadership is, is balancing the, the various interests of your investors, your customers, and your employees. On the life work balance, I think I've come in my, my older age to prefer different words. Like I, I really like you choosing the places you want to have impact and being deliberate about thinking about the impact you want to have. I want to have impact on my kids. I want to be there to have impact on my kids. I want to have impact on my company. I want to have impact on my, on my friends. And so you, the wagon wheel of your time allocation to me isn't really about, you know, balance between work and, and play. It's really about you being deliberate about choosing where you want to have your impact and then saying, am I, am I walking the talk? Am I actually living up to my desired way to spend enough time to have impact with my kids or to have impact with the company and just make it happen? Yeah, I think that's great, Ron. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, is talked a lot about in business today is purpose. And, you know, the, the idea of purpose with impact, I think, is, is really important that, uh, that we all think about frankly, right? And absolutely. absolutely. We'll reallocate our time differently if we, if we all thought about that a little bit more carefully. Hey, we're almost near the end, Ron. I'm going to just give you the chance to maybe say uh, or talk to something that, that we haven't had a chance to speak to today or just, you know, kind of the last thing on your mind. And uh, Thank that you. That's very kind of you. I, you know, I, I really want to end with one concept, and I think it's the concept of character. And that probably won't surprise any of you. And I'm sure you all live up to this every day or try to, as, as we all do. But it's, it's something to think about in advance. Because in your life, your character has already been tested. And it's going to be tested again. And if, to the extent that you can think about what you might do and what you might do differently and how you might react when you're cornered, when these things are sprung upon you and you have to think on your feet, it's helpful to sort of draw your own lines in the sand with a little bit of private time in the, in the sort of the confidential circle of your own thinking there. Who are you? What do you stand for? What do you want to be known for? What kind of person do you choose to be? And that character, if you've thought about it deliberately and you've given yourself a chance to actually write down some things and pick some words and pick some priorities, it will start to shine through and it'll shine through in work and it'll shine through in play with friends. And at the end of the day, when I think when you look back on your career or your family, it'll be one of the things that brings you sort of the most joy is the impact that you've had on people, those people who may have kindly said you were a role model. And all of that can go away in a heartbeat if your character 
becomes questioned or suspect. And so it's, it's something that takes a lifetime to build of constant attention and thought that's deliberate, and it can be lost in a heartbreak, in a heartbeat, in a heartbreak. And so just, just think about character as sort of a fundamental ingredient of how you want to be and who you want to be. And, you know, it improves your odds, I think, about uh, looking back when you're, when you're as old as I am anyway and uh, feeling good about your career. Awesome. Uh, Ron, I'm going to wrap up, Ash, and then I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, Ron, thanks so much. Uh, You're just one of the best speakers on entrepreneurship that I know. And and I know it's because you reflect on on your experiences and and how you would want to convey messages. And I really appreciate it. And I know you've made a huge impact uh, on me and on the business school and the things that we still teach. you know, years after uh, you've, you've, you've been with us in the classroom. So it's, uh, it's really appreciated. Eric, it's my honor and pleasure. And I'm a little out of practice. And thanks for, for bearing with me. But <laughs> it's, it's always an honor to be uh, with you. Well, the three things that struck me, you know, deliberate impact and do that with character. And I think uh, those are just great life lessons uh, for all of us. So uh, thanks very much. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.